You need to find your safe place now. Having lived in Arkansas for right at three and a half years now, every spring I've become fairly accustomed to hearing those words on the local, local news station. So truth in advertising, anytime inclement, tornadic-like weather is approaching our area, I automatically began preparing myself for hearing those urgent, anxiety-inducing words once again. I've grown accustomed to what I expect to see on that television station, usually with long sleeve collared shirts with their cuffs rolled up, something like this, sirens going off in the background, the meteorologist on TV alarms us all that in the targeted areas that are near or in the path of a tornado, we need to prepare. We need to take shelter. They prepare us for the possible threat of damaging winds and hail, and they do so often with those grim, serious, and concerning words. You need to find your safe place now. Well, let's all get honest. Not everyone in here responds the same way to those urgent and concerning words, do we? Some of us, that safe place is a tornado shelter. Others of us find a closet or a windowless bathroom in the house. But for some of us, it's sitting out on the front porch with a Dr. Pepper sweet tea or Diet Coke in one hand and a smartphone in the other, filming the dark sky above us as if it's a 4th of July fireworks show. Some of us are embracing for the worst, while others of us are feeling oddly entertained. Each in our own ways, we have our own safe places in ways we respond to the Arkansas weather like we do. But this idea of taking cover and seeking safety isn't something we do simply to inclement weather that comes our way, do we? Young children often have a favorite bedtime blankie or a stuffed bear or stuffed dog they like to sleep with, walk around the house with, even take it in the car with them if mom and dad let them. Or it could be simply a nightlight left on in the hallway or maybe the soothing rub on the back by a mom and dad to assure them that all is well. But as adults, we have our own forms of security blankets, don't we? Especially with things like money, wealth, and material things. So for example, when times are tough financially, we get to find out where our true security lies, don't we? Whether that's because of a rise in practical living cost, inflation, or we're facing an economic recession and the housing market is terrible and taxes seem to be at an all-time high. Or maybe because we're now jobless, for whatever reason, in need of finding a new job or a higher-paying one. Beloved, it's in these moments that we find ourselves doing what? Well, we start looking to our savings, looking at that 401k, looking at the stock market, looking at all their equitable assets we could sell to bring in income. Maybe even we look to family and friends who will come through for us financially, knowing that their piggy banks might be fuller than ours. And while none of those things are inherently wrong, they could actually be wise actions to take. What is it exactly we are doing 
in those moments. We're looking for security. We're looking for a safe place. We're looking around at what we have, who we know, and where we are in life to find some form of comfort, to find some form of stability, to assure us, or at least try to, that all is well with us and the people we love and that all will be well with us in the end. Friends, what in your life is your safe place? When you think about your life today, what is that safe place you tend to go to again and again in order to find contentment, stability, even happiness in life? When you think about the reality of sin, suffering, death, and the judgment day to come, What is the safe place you go to? Where do you run to in your mind on those dark, cold nights of the soul to assure your soul it is well with God? If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 16. Psalm 16, if you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, You can find that on page 258, Psalm 16. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can take that as a gift from our church to you if you don't have a Bible at home. This morning, our psalm is penned by the author David. And in this psalm, we find David doing what he often did when he faced troubles in his life, when he faced threats, when he faced the temptation to be afraid and insecure, much like we can be. What do we find David do? Well, he looked to his God. Psalm 16. Please follow with me. A mictum of David. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. This is God's word. 
there in the heading of the psalm, we read it as a mictum of David. You might be asking, what on earth is a mictum? Well, good question. I don't know. Most scholars and commentators are undecided themselves, so we don't need to spend much time on what a mictum is. But we do know who David is. And we do know that something is pressing in on his heart. And we know that by how he begins this psalm. Look at me at verse 1. David writes, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Who is David? David is the former shepherd boy, the youngest of seven, of Jesse, anointed to be king of Israel. And friends, if you read about David's life in First and Second Samuel, you will find that he always found himself, it appears, particularly in his latter years, between a rock and a hard place. Whether it was fleeing from Saul or his estranged son Absalom, or facing the dry and dangerous wilderness terrain in Judea, David was no stranger to hardships in his life. Unlike some of the other Psalms we read in the Psalter that give greater detail on specific people that were opposing David, or even specific places David found himself in, we're not told much of the sorts in Psalm 16. But we do know this. David had a keen awareness of his ongoing need for God's protection. David had a keen awareness, an intense, strong awareness of his ongoing need for God's protection. Like wearing a life preserver would be for someone stranded at sea like body armor on a policeman or a soldier in the heat of a fierce battle or shootout, David knew he needed protection. He understood that within himself, David was incapable of winning every fight on his own. And likewise, he also knew that he was capable of quitting and giving up. Capable of lying down on the floor in unbelief and despair. He knew that within himself, he was frail in strength. And finite in human wisdom, left all to himself, he would be a flaky and fickle man. Rather than a man of strong and enduring faith. Apart from God being for him and with him and on his side. David was keenly aware of what he would do, given the right set of tempting or testing circumstances. He would run. He would hide. He would try to escape from all the challenging circumstances of his life when he became afraid. Like many of us, he would simply ghost on being where God called him to be. He would just run away what God had called him to do. Have you been there before? Have you ghosted on being where you know God wants you to be? Have you tried to duck, run, and hide on doing what you know God's called you to do? Have you ever found yourself so afraid, so insecure, so full of angst that you just want to run away from everything and everybody? Perhaps just lie down on the floor 
in unbelief and just quit on life. Friends, if you have, you're in good company. This church is filled, including this man, with flighty and fearful sinners. We are all like sheep who have gone astray, each to our own way. And the fact that any of us are still looking to Jesus today, the fact that any of us are even in the Lord's house on the Lord's day with the Lord's people, friends, that's a miracle of God in and of itself. Oh, friends, this is why we sing of God's amazing grace not of our amazing faith. Have you ever caught that? Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. You know how it goes. Twas grace that taught my heart to fear and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Oh, this is good. Through many dangers, toils, and snares, I have already come. Tis grace that brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. So what did David do? Like a man who's insecure and who's afraid. In what way should we imitate the example of David in his life when we feel insecure. Well, David resolved to look where he believed ultimate protection and security could be found. He looked to his faithful God who can be trusted all the time. David longed for the intimate nearness of his God, especially when he found the ground underneath him shaking and the circumstances of his life slipping from his grip. So what do we see David do in verse 1? He prays. He prays. He calls out to God. He tells God what's on his mind, and he makes an urgent request. Listen to what he prays. Preserve me, O God. It's just another way of saying, keep me, God. Guard me. Watch over me. Protect me. In fact, he explains why he's going to God, asking him to preserve him. Did you notice what he says there in the very next phrase? For in you. Notice he didn't say circumstances. In you I take refuge. What does it mean to seek refuge in something? Well, think about it. Some of us who are not on the front porch drinking a Dr. Pepper with a cell phone in our hands, when a tornado is possibly approaching our area, what do most of us, not from Arkansas originally, at least try to do? Seek protection. Flee for shelter. Find a safe place. Friends, that's what it means to seek refuge. It means to seek a safe place place. Friends, why do any of us have security alarms in our homes? Why do most people in this church pack, if you know what I mean? Why do we call the police when someone's in trouble? Well, it's because we're trying to find a place or a person that we believe will make us safe. We're trying to surround ourselves with specific people and equip ourselves with whatever we believe will make us feel protected. Well, throughout the Psalms in particular and in other places in Scripture, 
God is often described for his people as their refuge. Did you know that? God is talked about frequently in the Psalms and in other places as our strong and safe refuge. If you want to jot a few of these down, maybe meditate on this afternoon or even tomorrow during Memorial Day. Psalm 5, verse 11. Psalm 17, verse 7. Psalm 18, verse 2. Psalm 18, verse 30. Psalm 25, verse 20. Psalm 31, verse 1. And Psalm 31, verse 19. So 511, 177, 182, 1830, 2520, 311, 31:19. All of these speak of God as our refuge. Maybe you recall in the study in the book of Ruth. We studied the book of Ruth verse by verse, in December of last year as a church. Or the ladies, if you came to the Ruth Bible study that happened in recent months, maybe you recall what Boaz said to Ruth after she had gleaned in the fields of Bethlehem. Ruth 2, verse 2, The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Or consider a couple of the Proverbs as well. Proverbs 18.10 similarly says this, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous man runs into it and is safe. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, Every word of God proves true. He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. Friends, calling God our refuge is just another way of saying this, I put my trust in you. My confidence is in you. Lord, I believe and I'm hoping in that you are a safe place for my life, for my family, for my soul. Friends, do you go to God and ask him to protect you? When's the last time you prayed that prayer? When is the last time you pled before God that he would preserve you and that you are calling on him as your refuge? If you do, what is it in your life that you tend to ask God to protect and preserve the most? Is it your health? Is it a person you want to avoid, stay away from, maybe even never see them again? Do you find yourself asking God to protect your spouse, your children, your grandchildren? Friends, do you ever ask God to protect our church? Protect our church from being destroyed, divided, and deceived by the evil one. Friends, we're living in some very dark times in our nation. As Christians, we have the privilege to shine as brightly as ever before. But we should be praying that God would have mercy on our nation and that he would not give our dark and depraved culture over to completely its darkened and depraved hearts. Friends, pray that God would preserve 
even the community we live in. Friends, we need God's protection everywhere, all the time. Friends, we should even pray that God would protect us from ourselves, that we wouldn't harm ourselves, that we wouldn't make bad decisions in our life. Friends, it is right to pray every day, protect me from diving headfirst into sin. Isn't that what Jesus told us to pray? Matthew 6, verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. That's, that's a prayer to God asking him to protect us. Protecting us from walking into a temptation and delivering us if we're caught in one. Maybe even more personal than that, maybe some of us ask God to protect our faith in him from failing. Much like the distressed father pleaded to Jesus to heal his oppressed and suffering child in Mark 9, 24. Do you remember when we went through the gospel of Mark? The father cried out, I believe. Help my unbelief. Friends, whatever it is we tend to ask God to preserve and protect, it shows what means the most to us. And it's revealing how much we really believe that we need God's abiding protection. Friends, do you, do you truly believe that you need his abiding protection all the time or just some of the time? That was convicting for me this week. I don't think I need God's protection all the time. I'm telling you that from my heart. And that's convicting because that's telling me then I'm finding security in someone or something else outside of my God. And that's dangerous. You see, friends, David prayed this prayer not in effort to use God like a life insurance policy. You know, pay a monthly fee just in case something really big and bad happens. You know, like a fallback plan, a plan B, a get-out-of-jail-free card, a good luck charm to rub when times get tough. Friends, David certainly prayed those big prayers when he felt his life was in danger. Friends, we should do the same too. But David's prayer to God here to preserve and protect him was grounded in a personal, daily relationship that he had with his God. Friends, that means this. Our relationship with God shouldn't be like the one we have with a 911 dispatch. If our prayer life is only when our life is in utter trouble, and that's the only time we ever call out to God, friends, we have a misunderstanding of what it means to be in relationship with him. We do call on God for the big things and the emergencies, but friends, we learn to trust him in the big things and in the bad things by cultivating a daily communing relationship with him and even in the smaller things. Just like you and I should do, David had cultivated this daily walk with God. And he did so by counting his blessings from God one by one. You see, David at first come to grips with the fact that any good thing in his life had come from the gracious and generous hand of God. Look with me at verse 2. Verse 2. David says, I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. 
David turns now from calling God his sovereign protector, verse 1, and he now describes God as his covenant or promise-making and promise-keeping God who rules over him with abundant goodness poured over him in his life. Notice verse 2, David first says, I say to the Lord. Uh, The Lord there is probably in all caps in your English Bibles. That's why it's not giving, this is not speaking of God's, um, this is not the word Lord as a title, but the Lord as in his name. The special, memorial, covenant-keeping, personal name of God, Yahweh. This is David's way of showing he was in a covenantal relationship with God. A relationship that was full of trust and commitment. A man of God who also was a king who represented God's rule among the people. David saw his relationship with God as one where he was bound to, wedded to, and glued to his God. And then David immediately says, Did you notice? You are my Lord. Your translation or your English Bibles won't have it in caps. Why is that? Is that just like a misprint in the uh, English Bible? No, no, that's that's our own purpose. This is one of the titles of God. This is the word Adonai or Adon. It means God is my master. God is my ruler. Taken together, David is revealing to us what God made abundantly clear to David. Friends, David knew he had nothing. David knew he was nothing. David knew he could do nothing apart from the kind, merciful, and generous grace of God in his life. Did you notice what he just said? I have no good apart from you. Some of your translations might even say, I have no good besides you, or I have no good without you, or my goodness is nothing apart from you. Friends, who talks like that? Who speaks like that? I have no good, nothing, nada, not a thing, apart from you. From you. Well, it certainly isn't a prideful person. It certainly isn't someone who thinks they're a self made man or a self made woman. It certainly isn't a man-centered, humanistic worldview where God is dead and absent and man and his hard work and his talents and the natural world is all that exists. No, David was not a self-made man. David was a grace man. He knew by the grace of God he was who he was and he had what he had because of the goodness of God over his life. David looks around at his circumstances. He looks at what he's been given in his life. He checks his wallet. He looks in the bank. He checks around his property. He even looks at himself in the mirror to some degree. And David recognizes what many of us often forget. 
He recognizes with crystal clarity that everything David had was a gift from God. Everything. Everything. Life. Health. Wealth. Work. Family. Friends. Houses. Cars. Vacations. Church. Clothes. Food, medicine, jobs, salvation. Friends, even the ability to have the eyes of faith to believe and trust in God, all of it is a gift from God. You see, we are all sinners. We are bankrupt. Though we aren't as all bad as we could be, even the restraint in our consciences that moral seatbelt when you want to dive headfirst into sin so bad and you go, I can't do it. Who do you think is restraining you? Look over your life. I know I can look over mine. I have this conversation with Julie a lot. And I look back on my life and go, Julie, how did I not end up and X, Y, and Z, and she'll just humbly and soberly remind me, because God loves you. The Lord puts that seatbelt on our consciences. We're not as bad as we could be. We are only good as we are because of him. He restrained us from becoming more evil than our heart really wanted to be. Oh, friends, what did Paul say about our salvation in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10? For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, I love this last phrase, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Friends, even all the achievements of our life were prepared by God beforehand. It's all grace, forgiveness, eternal life, goodness, godliness, good works, success. It's all grace. There's not one shred of goodness in us apart from this God. Isn't that what John the Baptist made abundantly clear when people were confused about, hey, this guy named Jesus is like baptizing people. John the Baptist said in John 3, 27, this is a good one to think about. A person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. That's a good one to think about today. Friends, why was this crucial for David to come to grips with? That all of life's pleasures, all of life's blessings, any goodness we have in our life, all of it is only possible because of God's unmerited favor. Friends, why is this crucial for us this morning to come to grips with this too? Friends, this is essential. This is the essential foundation for where true happiness and real contentment comes from in our life. This is the ground 
that our faith must stand on if we were to have immovable confidence and an unwavering hope as we face the future. If you're taking notes, I have two main points that will serve as an outline for the rest of the psalm. Point number one, we are only as content and happy in life as the God we serve is. We are only as content and happy in life as the God we serve is. Point number two, we are only as confident and hopeful about the future as the God we serve is. We are only as confident and hopeful about the future as the God we serve is. Let's do that first point with me together. We are only as content and happy in life as the God we serve is. Look at me, verses 3 to 6. David says in verse 3, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones, in whom is all my delight. Verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. Verse 5, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Here in verses 3 to 6, we see specific ways David has found contentment and happiness in his life. Yes, David, like us, did become angry. He did become sad. He did become distressed. And he did call out to God to preserve him, to protect him. David lived in a fallen world and a fallen body just like us. But David also found ways to be content, listen church, to be content and happy in God with the life God sovereignly gave him. In verse 3, David speaks about one of those wonderful blessings that he found happiness and contentment in. He speaks about the people of God the people God had brought into his life that loved Yahweh. Those relationships, those people, those like-minded believers in this God, these dear men and women who belong to God, they brought David delight in his life. He says, did you notice in verse 3, as for the saints in the land, speaking most likely of Israel, where David spent most of his time, who are the saints? Well, it just means we those who have been set apart and who are in covenant with God. These are people like David who recognized their sin problem but were in a covenant of grace with the Lord. These were God's people. And because they were God's people, they were David's people. They were David's spiritual family. And in verse 3, notice what he says, In whom is all my delight. Brothers and sisters, one of the great joys of being a Christian is being in fellowship with other Christians. One of the ways God increases our joy in him is by fellowshipping with other Christians that love Jesus the way we do. A like-minded Christian, friends, who you enjoy fellowship with, that you look forward to, that you walk away going, man, my heart is 
full. My cup is overflowing. I walked into this place with a frown. I'm leaving with a smile. Why? Because Christian fellowship with like-minded believers is a precious gift from God. Friends, sometimes the reason why we're not growing spiritually is because we're too distant from his people. The local church is not a cherry on top of our American dream. The local church is the center gravitational pull for how we grow in Christ's likeness. But here, watch this. The local church is also, when viewed through the eyes of faith and the eyes of love, is one of the precious gifts that God deepens our joy in Him with. Friends, even here at CCBC, this church is not perfect. We have our problems, we have our inconsistencies, and we have quirks just like every other church. But when seen through the eyes of faith, when looked at our church through God's perspective, friends, this church is a gift from God to us. In one sense, a church was started by us, and in another sense, God birthed the church and just happened to use us. So friends, if your joy in God is lacking today, ask God to enrich your fellowship with other Christians. It's not always a one-to-one correlation, don't get me wrong. But friends, if we're close and connected to the body of Christ, we're probably close and connected to the head of the body. And when we're isolated and distant and hard-hearted towards the body of Christ, friends, most likely, we're not doing well spiritually with the head of the body. But if your heart begins to grow cold towards this dear church, pray that God would refresh it. Pray God would give you a deep ache and longing to see your brothers and sisters once again. Friends, I make it a prayer for me when church members aren't here, whether they're on vacation or maybe they're being disobedient to Jesus or even when they're sick or even when they're on doing whatever. I'm always praying, Lord, we, I pray that you would help them miss these people. That's a great way to pray with love, but wanting them not to miss out on what God has for their joy. The Apostle Paul spoke that way to the Philippian church. Donna was talking about reading D.A. Carson's Praying with Paul book. I love one of the ways that Paul talks about the Philippian church. Philippians 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. What did Jesus say about those who belong to his family? Mark 3, and following, who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my mother and brother and sister. Friends, those who love Jesus and walk in the will of God, they are our family too. And David not only found delight in being in fellowship and a leader amongst God's people, but David had also resolved to separate himself from those who went after false gods. He separated himself from their pagan religion and their worldly pursuits that were man-centered rather than God-centered. Because God had shown him the truth about sin, the purpose of life, and his goodness, he saw that living life apart from trust and obedience to God would only lead to misery, regret, 
and self-destruction in the end. In verse 4, David speaks about those who try to live and worship after created things rather than the creator himself. Look with me in verse 4. David says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names to my lips. Here, David is speaking, frankly, about idolatry. What is idolatry? It's, it's relying on a created thing with one's heart as number one, rather than relying on God as number one in our hearts. You see, idolatry doesn't begin with a statute or a dollar bill. Idolatry begins in our hearts. As Calvin said, our hearts are idol factories. When we try to find satisfaction and pleasure and purpose in life, disconnected from knowing this God and enjoying the pleasures he approves of. You see, the idolatry David speaks about here refers to those who offered up drink offerings of blood. This was a practice not sanctioned or ordained in the Old Testament as appropriate to Yahweh. David alludes to the objects where those drink offerings of blood were being offered in verse 4. He says, I will not take their names on my lips. In other words, David's saying, listen, I'm not going to let anything enter my life. The TV, the tube, the phone, the people I mingle and fellowship with the most. I'm not going to let anything into my life enter into my heart and my mind and allow it to affect what I talk about, what I love, what I worship. David is speaking about false gods, demonic spirits, or simply idols, created things, or so-called gods that we, we look to instead of the one true God. Because David desired to obey the first table of the law, that's the first four of the Ten Commandments, by loving the Lord his God with all his heart, mind, soul, and strength, David had resolved to not allow any belief system or any people get in the way of his relationship with God. David made that resolve to live a holy life, not because a holy life is a dreadful life. A holy life actually leads to the abundant life we were called to live. You see, in verse 4, David says that if we live our lives disconnected from Yahweh, we run headfirst into sin instead of enjoying the pleasures he appropriates. David says it only leads to sorrow in the end. That's what he says. Look at verse 4. The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Friends, we are going to experience sorrow in this fallen world. There are times we're going to be sad and grieved because we're living in a place that is not glory and heaven yet. Oh, but friends, the suffering we experience because of the consequences of our sin is far more bitter than the sufferings we may face in following Jesus. Isn't this what happened to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden? God gave them endless pleasures of every tree of the garden in his perfect world to enjoy and only one prohibition to heed. One command, that's it, to not eat from this forbidden tree. But they believed a lie. They believed the serpent's lie that eating from that one tree would then complete them. It would fill them up. 
it would make them happier, more content, more secure than what God had already given them. Friends, when they ate that tree, the serpent said you would be like God, knowing good and evil. Friends, what happened? They ate from that tree and they experienced shame, nakedness, fear, insecurity, discontentment, anger, blame game, sadness, sorrow. Why do we experience sorrow in this life? It's because of that first rebellion to God in the garden. Sin entered the world through one man, and death and sorrow spread to all men because all sinned. Friends, look at our lives. What are our deepest regrets in life? It's when we chose our way over God's way. Friends, that's the essence of all forms of idolatry. It's looking at God and telling God that he isn't enough. His present provisions of our lives are not enough. His authority can't be trusted over my life. His goodness by sending us a Savior in Jesus Christ, it just isn't enough. Idolatry is birthed in our hearts when we become suspicious of God's love and his care for us. Idolatry then shows up in our lives when we become discontent and even angry towards God. And friends, if God doesn't stop us in that anger, we become very cozy in our hearts with that anger towards him. Friends, that's when we become comfortable lying in the bed of unbelief. Ed Welch once said this, the danger with all desires is not so much what we want, but how much we want it. Another way we expose idolatrous tendencies is to complete the statement If I only had blank, then I could be happy. Chances are that you will name a desire that can enslave you. Friends, what would you put in that blank today? If I only had fill in the blank, then I would be happy. Friends, have you ever thought about that God may be withholding what you and I are putting in that blank because he knows it will become an idol in our life. He knows our hearts want it too much. He's not withholding joy in our life. He's protecting us from further sorrow and regret. You see, the Lord tells us no, or even just not now to a desire, because he knows what our hearts are wanting more than him. Friends, one of the ways God matures our faith and enriches our joy is sometimes by delaying answers to our prayers. He teaches us to trust his goodness. He teaches us to wait on his timing. Friends, even when God tells us no, It is always coming from a heart of love 
never from a heart of hate. You see, David had tasted and seen this, that God himself is better than what our eyes and our flesh instantly crave. For this is what birthed contentment in his life. It wasn't doing life his own way. It wasn't getting what he want when he wanted. It wasn't using God as a blessing dispenser. No, that's, that's not what life is ultimately about. Life, true life, living the good life is about knowing God himself. Delighting in his character and in his promises. Learning to enjoy God and enjoy the good gifts he chooses to give us. Look at verses 5 and 6 with me. Look what David says. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David here uses language that would have been common in the Old Testament to speak about God's blessings in the promised land, land properties, inheritances. Did you notice all the phrases he uses, that kind of Hebrew parallelism? A chosen portion, you hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. I have a beautiful inheritance. But I want you to zoom in. If you can just zoom in with me. Look at that verse 5b, the second phrase. Verse 5b. David says, you hold my lot. This could also be translated, you hold my future. The future is secure in your hands. This land imagery was a promise that God made to Israel and those who would be faithful to him, both as present blessings but also future blessings, that God would be their God and that he would remain with them. And this was David believing the promise that if we look to him for all that we need, for life and godliness, God's people and God's place in God's presence, enjoying God and his good pleasures without interruption. This is God's intent in drawing us to himself. In other words, David recognizes what we should be recognizing about ourselves. God holds our lives in his hands. Randall, Krista, Hannah, he holds your lot. Stan, he holds your lot. John, he holds your lot. Jan and Rick, he holds your lot. Your future, tomorrow, 20 years from now, your family, it's secure in his hands. David here is looking around at his life and he sees God's fingerprints all over it. But notice who David says is the most amazing blessing of it all. It's God himself. The Lord is my chosen portion in my cup. Y'all know Psalm 23, right? Doesn't that sound a lot like Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Verse 5, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy 
shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. I remember meeting a dear brother in Christ, uh, Tom Bennett, got diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. I'll never forget he was walking out of my door in Washington, D.C. at Capitol Hill Baptist Church. I said, Tom, I heard about the diagnosis. Brother, how can I pray for you? And he said, pray that I remember Psalm 23, 6. The Lord's goodness is on one shoulder. The Lord's mercy is on the other. And he's going to follow me for however many days he gives me and throughout eternity. And our brother Tom is now with Christ in glory. Goodness and mercy shall follow us all the days of our life. You see, friends, that's only possible because Jesus in the garden had a cup. It wasn't the cup of blessing. It was the cup of God's wrath, God's justice. Why did Jesus have a cup in the garden of Gethsemane of God's wrath and not God's blessing? Did Jesus sin? Did Jesus do something wrong? Friends, Jesus got down on his face in submitting himself to his Father's will to drink down the cup of God's anger towards sin that we deserve. We should have been drinking the cup of wrath and damnation, and the Lord said, give me the cup. I will drink it so that we can drink down the cup of blessing and fellowship. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is our chosen portion in our cup. He's our good shepherd. He's the lover of our soul. He's our dearest friend. He laid down his life in the place of all of us who would repent of our sins and trust in him. Friends, he was our substitute who stood in our place. In that sense, Christ is our sovereign protector. Christ is our refuge that gives us shelter and protection from the judgment that is coming on the world. Friends, if you're not a Christian here today, if you die in your sin and you reject the one and only Savior in Jesus Christ, there is no amount of pleasure that you can experience in this life that will help you in the next. Thomas Watson once said, hell is an abiding place, but no resting place. Jesus hung on that cross in misery, in agony, bearing the punishment we deserve for our sin. And God crushed him under the full fierce of hell's wrath for us. He died in our place. God raised him from the dead that we might taste and see that God is forgiving, God is gracious, God is forgiving, and God will guard us and protect us and bring us home to him. That's why salvation's a grace. It's a gift. Come to Christ today. Receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, and he will protect you from the judgment to come. Point number two. We are only as confident and hopeful about the future as the God we serve is. This will be a little quicker. When you think about your future or your family's future, what makes you feel safe? Like, really? You care about you. You care about those you love. 
What makes you feel secure for you and secure for them? When you think about the next 5, 10, 15, or 20 years from now, do you tend to look to your future with optimism and hope? Or do you tend to feel aimless and afraid? Friends, if we want to walk confidently with hope as we face the future, we have to serve and listen to the God who holds the future. That's why idolatry is insanity. That's why living for anything else or anyone else is crazy. What brings us confidence is not us or human predictions. What brings us confidence is the God who knows the future. Look what he says in verse 7. I bless the Lord who what? Gives me counsel in the night. Also, my heart instructs me. In other words, David views God as an infallible counselor. He's the perfect advice giver. He knows how to lead us. David had obviously hidden God's word in his heart so much that when he's laying on his bed at night, what's coming to his thoughts are precepts and promises that God will lead him. Look at verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Friends, this is a decisive resolve. The Lord is before me. He's number one in every decision about what job I take, about who I marry, about how I raise my kids, about everything. The Lord is out front of David. David is not out in front of the Lord. That's where we get in trouble. The Lord is leading us, and we follow and listen, not the other way around. Friends, every day we have many decisions to make, but this is the most important decision. Will we set the Lord always before me, or is the Lord an after effect? David relies heavily upon the Lord, and notice what he says, I shall not be shaken, I shall not be moved. And this is why precisely serving and listening to this God matters. Friends, this is the source of true happiness and contentment in life. Notice what happened to David as he thought about his own future. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Notice how this psalm is beginning to end now. It began with God as my refuge. I have no good apart from you. The people of God are my joy. I will not run to idols. They're only going to lead to sorrow. The Lord is my portion. The Lord is my cup. He holds my future. Everything he's given me is a blessing. David says, I'm putting you before me. And David's now full of joy. Cheerfulness. Gladness, security. He's full of hope about his future. But verse 10 is a strange verse, isn't it? Sheol is the Hebrew term for the use of the place of the dead. It's interesting that David here in verse 10 says, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. 
Friends, is David speaking about himself? That David would never die? Hold your place in Psalm 16. Turn over to the New Testament in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2. Hold your place. We're going to flip right back at the very end. We are beginning to uh, get closer to the runway here. On this historic day of Pentecost, the apostle Peter is preaching and the people who hated Jesus, crucified Jesus, are now hearing the gospel proclaimed. Notice what Peter says to many of the Jews listening in on what Peter has to say. Acts 2, starting in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. And as you, you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Verse 24, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Verse 25, for David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Verse 29, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Beloved, Peter quotes Psalm 16 to show that David, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, was prophesying not ultimately about himself in verses 7 and following, but about Christ. Jesus is the Holy One who would not see corruption. He is the one with the joy set before him, endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Friends, Jesus is God's Son. Jesus is the promised Messiah, and God displayed that by raising him from the dead. You see, Peter takes the latter half of Psalm 16 to make the point to the Jews and to us listening today to Psalm 16. The long-awaited Messiah, the hope of the ends of the earth, the joy and contentment and happiness of our souls is found in knowing Jesus Christ as risen from the dead. He crushed the serpent's head he conquered our enemies of sin, and one day he will defeat forever our last enemy in death. Friends, Jesus is where we find delight. He is our inheritance. Oh, friends, if someone asked you the question right now, who is the first person you want to meet 
when you walk through those pearly gates of glory. If it's anyone other than Jesus, we have too small a view of Jesus. He is the point. He knows us by name. His blood was shed for us. His presence, his person, his love is more precious than any gift in this life or in the life to come. Friends, Psalm 16 ends with, listen, Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. God is not a pleasure killer. He's a pleasure giver. But he gives us pleasures that are good for us. Not ones that will harm us. Friends, what is the path of life? As Matt wrote earlier from Matthew 7, 13, it's following Jesus on the narrow way that leads to life. Following Jesus is what it truly means to live life. How do we have contentment and happiness in this life, the life God gave us? It begins by seeking and knowing this God and what he has done for us in Christ. Again, Thomas Watson once said, here joy enters into the saints. In heaven, they enter into his joy, into the joy of our master. Friends, how do we face our futures with confidence and hope then? It's listening and following the one who holds our lot. Friends, you might be here today and you're facing some sort of crossroads in your life. There's some uncertainty about the future, the unknown, that is gnawing at your soul. It's leaving you restless at night. Friends, if that's any of you or any of us this week, listen to this wisdom from Dave Harvey. He says this, Do you feel called in a direction but are uncertain about what will happen? God's design in that is to drive you to dependence upon him. Have you noticed how your desperation for God increases with the uncertainty in your life? The new job, the new child, that new ministry? All of a sudden, we're desperate for God. We're starved, needy, ravished by a hunger to hear. God delights to put us in this position because it postures us to depend on him and to exercise faith toward him. It's part of how he rescues us from misplaced security. A good question for all of us to grapple with then is this. If God's presence is where there is fullness of joy, and at his right hand are pleasures forevermore, what other motivation do we need to remain faithful walking with Jesus on the narrow way. William Plummer once said, God's people have good things now and better coming. That's good. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. Friends, if our faith is in the risen Christ, the Bible says we are united in a death like his and we'll be united in a resurrection like his. The Lord will not abandon our soul to the place of the dead. Death 
It's not a dead end to our existence. In Christ, it is the doorway to life. He will preserve our faith. And in the life to come, we will experience the fullness of joy without interruption and without intermission ever again. Let's pray. Father, we praise you that you have made known the path of life. And in your son, in the face of your son, there is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Father, we pray that each one of us would call out to you more frequently and regularly to protect us and preserve us. Lord, we know that you will preserve your people if we but look to you and not to idols. Lord, search our hearts even today. What's robbing us of this happiness and contentment in you? Lord, if we've walked off the narrow way, Lord, bring us back. Fill us with your joy again as we delight in you and in your people and in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.